From WPVMLP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Sevdaliza. fresh out of high school, I did a lot of work in the mission fields in Honduras. 
There was a saying among the NGOs in the islands, for God so loved the world that he did not send a committee. It was a sentiment that everyone could relate to, particularly when we saw construction supplies piling up at the docks and no one to distribute them since the powers that be hadn't issued their edict on where they should go. It seemed like a lot of quality equipment and supplies were going to waste because of the molasses-like pace of each organization. It was right after a hurricane and people badly needed roofs over their heads. The only other more glaring example I've ever seen is watching donated food go bad when it is mismanaged. The waste can be heartbreaking. Nate Crawford learned his own aggravating lesson about waste and the slow-turning corporate wheel when he worked for a donut shop in Philadelphia. My career selling donuts started right in the major leagues. My first day training was the morning shift in Center City, Philadelphia. The manager patiently answered my questions while her hands moved a mile a minute making coffee, cleaning countertops, and preparing a bulk order someone had called in the day before. Once open, the customers came in quick while I took notes and made coffee. As people were piling in into an ever-growing line, I noticed something exciting about the mood in the room. This small, hectic downtown shop felt incredibly cozy. The manager knew every other person who came through the doors and would catch up with regulars as they made their way through the line. The location was small and it was busy, but it was warm and welcoming. A couple weeks later, I was relocated to the restaurant's counter kiosk in a national grocery store chain. This was a stark change. Our lunch counter didn't have the same friendly charm of the downtown location. People were less interested in hanging out and chatting in the direct wake of customers pouring through the checkout lanes. For customers, the biggest difference was that we were barred from selling coffee with our donuts. The store had its own coffee bar and didn't want any competition. On busy Saturday mornings, customers would be understandably upset when, after they waited in line for donuts, they then needed to join an even longer line for coffee. The rule was that we were not allowed to sell anything that customers could find somewhere else in the store. Technically, we could have sold state secrets and cyanide, as long as we didn't offer anything people could also find in the grocery store's bakery department. Working inside a large chain also added another layer of rules to follow. The grocery store enforced stricter nutritional guidelines, so we occasionally had to substitute ingredients or forego a fluorescent Halloween donut with an artificial dye. That said, most rules, especially around food safety, didn't change at all. Whether you work in a grocery store or a restaurant, you can't start licking the food you give to customers. The government is pretty serious killjoy about that sort of thing. For me, The biggest difference was that at the grocery store location, we were not allowed to give away free food under any circumstances. Even if the president showed up on the verge of a diabetic coma, some secret service agent was going to need to flash some cash before we could help. The restaurants did a pretty steady business, but on the occasional slow day, they could hand out donuts as they got closer to closing time. That was not an option for us. On an average day, we were left with around half a dozen leftover donuts. If you start with over 200 donuts and end with seven, that number could almost feel negligible. But if you take home seven donuts most nights, you are drowning in donuts. And that's on an average day. Some days we sold out without problem. Some days, however, it seemed like all of America had turned its back on donuts. 
This left a major question about what to do with those leftovers. The rules were all about location. At the end of the day, the employees at the donut counter could take any donuts that hadn't sold. If we gave out our donuts on the grocery store property, that was considered theft. But once off of the grocery store property, we could do whatever we wanted. This policy kind of reminds me of a children's birthday parties I've seen where a kid named Dylan tries to take partial ownership over the present he just gave away. The difference, of course, is that the grocery store had armed guards to enforce whatever rules they laid out. Give Dylan a couple jack dudes with tasers, and I'm sure people would start to take him a little more seriously when he lays out his do's and don'ts of RC car ownership. The obvious thing to do with the seven or so donuts we had at the end of an average day was to give them to the employees of the grocery store, but even that was a no-go. Not only were the employees on grocery store property a violation of the rules, we were specifically forbidden from giving free food to the store employees. The grocery store got a portion of each donut sale we made, so they wanted to make sure that the employees were buying their own donuts. I understand this impulse. When I worked at a grocery store, I still had to buy my own carrots. But I think they took it too far. I probably only sold one donut a week to store employees. It seemed more than misguided to throw away donuts to preserve that weekly 20 cent commission. I realized that some people might be wondering why we don't give these donuts to a food bank or homeless shelter. I asked that too. I was told that a couple managers had made some inquiries around town but the forces fighting hunger in Philadelphia had better uses for their time than redirecting a small, inconsistent stream of dessert circles before they went bad in 24 hours. Fair enough. So, I would take the leftover donuts with me. I took donuts to bars, to shows, to meetings, and rehearsals. I gave donuts to everyone, from old friends to strangers on the street. Sometimes, if we had a lot of extras, I found someone to take them to work the next day. An option that was not available to me because my workplace was already full of donuts. Most of the time, however, if I was working the closing shift and thus collecting the leftover donuts, I was going straight home. As such, an embarrassing number of these leftover donuts went straight into my face. And after that, the rest ended up in the trash. One day, the nearby hummus counter started leaving leftovers in the break room for grocery store employees. A couple weeks went by and no one asked the hummus mongers to stop. We asked our manager and got the go-ahead to leave leftover donuts too. We were thrilled by the change. We became benevolent donut gods inside the store and we could stop force-feeding fried sweets to our friends and relatives. For a week or two, I was a little worried that we might get in trouble. But when I noticed that some of the in-store managers were making small talk with me about donut flavors, I figured we were in the clear. The gears of corporate bureaucracy sometimes move slowly, but they do move. Specifically, someone from the grocery store sent our manager an email saying that they knew we were leaving leftover donuts in the break room. They considered that theft, and if we did it again, we would be banned from the store. I believe they had us on camera, so there wasn't much room to argue or make excuses or try to throw the hummus people under the bus. Their decision baffled me at the time, and it still baffles me now. We were giving our donuts to their employees, and we weren't keeping donuts from customers, we were closed. 
The day was over. The math involved in understanding how that is not only a bad thing, but is stealing from them is mind-numbing in the worst way. Sometimes I worry that this is the ultimate goal of bureaucracy, to move the consequences of decisions so far away from the people making them that there isn't room for flexibility or exceptions. Your local business owner might have trouble looking you in the eye and saying that they can't help you, but the employee at your nearby box store is telling you the truth. They can't help you. There are strict rules in place to make sure they can't help you. And those rules are enforced by people the two of you will never meet. I realize that there are far more dire implications of this phenomenon than wasted donuts. I imagine that if I saw the amount of produce that the grocery store throws away each week, it would be humbling and heartbreaking. The donuts are just another sad example of a corporate structure that would rather throw things away than give them to their own employees. We worked for the restaurant, so the grocery store couldn't fire us. That said, they still had armed guards who could throw us out whenever we showed up for work. None of us felt good about it, but it didn't seem like a threat worth testing. So we went back to taking our donuts home with us, and when we had more donuts than we could handle, we threw them away. All to protect the grocery store's weekly windfall of 20 cents. Dave Whitehead reading Nate Crawford's story, Leftover Donuts. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
cliche about every journey starting with a single step. And while it may be true, every journey is also a continuous process of first steps for anyone who leaves themselves open for the ride. Steps that put you moving in the right direction. Steps that change our direction. Steps that bring you closer to someone you just met on that journey. Or steps that give you some distance. And if you play your cards right, those steps might just bring you to an incredible table with some incredible food. When Gina Cornejo set out to walk the Camino de Santiago, she found herself taking a great many of those steps. Here she is. It's a darkness that swirls with a caramel hue. Shadows move smooth as warm milk in my daily café con leche. And again, I wake up in a new bed, next to a new bedmate, moments away from wandering on a new road in a new day with new hopes of new, warm milk to swirl into my café. I am a pilgrim walking west toward the city of legend and myth, Santiago de Compostela, Spain. Un peregrino walking the sacred Camino de Santiago, an ancient pilgrimage that leads you to the fabled Catedral of St. James, our disciple hero, Santiago, 
in the old town of Santiago de Compostela, España. This 9th century Christian tradition of walking the way of St. James is layered with biblical significance, divine inquiry, stamina of the body and mind, and steeped in historical wonderment that you are walking hundreds of miles in the literal footsteps of kings and thieves, the holy and the damned. I begin at the foot of the pass, an ancient town otherwise known as Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in southwestern France at a humbling ground elevation of 557 feet from what my guidebook indicates. On foot, I will walk, hike, or crawl if the terrain requires it of me, 700 89.1 kilometers, roughly 500 miles. I'm rounding up a measly 10 miles because I'm bound to get lost. Aren't we all? Tomorrow, I take my first steps of my pilgrimage. Last night, in my slim single bed at the private albergue, or refuge for us pilgrims, in an anxiety-fueled fury of motionless, existential amplification, a light sweat clings my skin to the interior of my REI sleeping sack. My eyes flutter to all the dark corners of the cold and crumbling gray bricks that hold me and three other pilgrims, Briny, Jeremy, and Hannah, the three kind Kiwis I met just yesterday on the train from Paris to Bayonne and the bus from Bayonne to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, where we now all slumber. I whisper to no one in particular, or maybe to the haunts of pilgrim past, I will walk the Camino de Santiago. This is where people have come to die. Dramatic, sure. Truthful, sure, yes. Bottom line, I am goose-pimpled and electric. On the morning of my day one, I boldly choose to embark upon the treacherous and magnificent Napoleon route, which is anticipatory of a weather shift this afternoon. Large drops of rain, hail, lightning, thrusting, wind gusts, and all I can mutter is... Well, onwards. Otreya, as the old pilgrim adage goes. A godspeed to get us moving in a forward motion. This path of storybook grandeur is not to be missed with climbs to a glorious height of 4,757 feet into and through the Pyrenees in hopes that our weary bones reach the country of Spain by nightfall. It is now day 22, seasoned by a variety of inclement weather, intimate conversations with fellow peregrinos, and even more intimate sleeping arrangements with strangers from far-flung Australia, South Korea, South Africa, and Portland, I can proudly say I am in full pilgrimage mode. 
I declined an offer of a late afternoon cocktail from the couple that shares the bottom bunk beds beside me. Thank you, but no, I'm good. Nothing personal. A nap. I took a nap instead. Cheerful couple. Dave and Linda from California. Catholics. I only say Catholics because I've been told by them three times now that they've invited the monks over to their home for dinner on several occasions and that they are intimately familiar with the Vespers services, the traditional prayers, and the how-tos to chat it up with the monks. So, to me, in my fallen-from-grace-yet-optimistic-about-a-rebound ignorance, that truly makes them Catholics. Not better or sincerely devout, just focused. Focused on faith. Acting with a discipline that intrigues me greatly. I mean, I've never chatted with a monk, so... Some will have a tiny nip of wine with dinner. She discreetly discloses to me, her fingertips pressed gently on my forearms. Our little secret, says her body language, eyebrows raised and chin inwardly pointing down on a diagonal as she dishes more. And we discuss the books they've read recently or gardening. They... Dave and Linda, I quickly assess, have the angelic temperament to entertain monks, children under four, and anyone exiting a Chicago DMV with patience and whimsy. I then quickly self-assess and accept my fate of never dining with a monk, since all my initial topics of conversation skew off onto the dank pathways of curious oddities. My only hope would be to extract details of underbelly catacombs, scandalous biblical secrets, anything currently circulating on YouTube and the general topics of 90s R&B artists, and the intricacies and possible pitfalls of an open marriage. You know, the important things. Alas, I am not, nor will ever be, suited to host a monk for dinner. She, Linda, can't sleep since Klaus from Germany is sleeping next to her bottom bunk near the entrance of the Albergue San Antonio de Padua here in the town of Villar de Mazarif. Thus, her invitation to grab a cocktail and get far away from his snoring ruckus. But he... Klaus, from Germany, he doesn't sleep, sleep. He's more of a rattler, a rumbler, a silver-topped tumbler. His sleep penetrates the steel bars of the bunks. Each bolt, each hinge vibrates due to his full-bodied comatose cacophony. I've slept near Klaus before on my journey. I am privy to his nighttime routine and tossels. It was somewhere in between day 13 and day 17 that we became acquainted as nearby bedmates, and it was a calamitous calamity. My earplugs, alpaca hat, and fleece hood couldn't manage to muffle his voluminous slumber. 
At the impromptu cocktail happy hour, there was a discussion of a 4 a.m. start. Dave and Linda, in full recognition that a peaceful sleep would not be occurring tonight, decided to concoct a pre-dawn getaway. Anyone who wanted in on the game was welcome to rendezvous with them in the shadows of a sleepless hush. The 4 a.m. start has commenced. They, the Californians, now strap on their mini headlamps extra early this morning. As the cocks begin their daybreak lullaby in the open patch of scorched grass and hay underneath the main window toward the front of the albergue, there is a sleepy collective consciousness that whispers to us all. Onward, Otreya. This morning, the cocks actually managed to coo tenderly, barely being heard over Klaus. These, the true early morning miners, the ambitious peregrinos that actually enjoy seizing the day when it still remains dipped in its nightgown, dig and dive into their rucksacks, rustling out the day's rations. A two-week-old tenderized power bar, a bag of sawdust, I mean, a bag of mixed nuts, and a tooth-chipping wedge of manchego bought three days and six towns ago. They stuff sleeping sacks and loose toothbrushes into the depths of the unknown of their backpacks, the only true companion on this journey, aside from God, if one subscribes to him, of course. Zipper zip up, Zip open, zip down, zip shut. Pants on, shirt on, hat on, cinch. Jacket on, zipper zip. Socks on, shoes on. (gasps) Wait, hey, you dropped this. Shh, sorry. Thanks. Where's the, the thingy? Oh, okay, thanks. No need to shush the 4 a.m. bunch. All footsteps hold respect, and all miners' lights don't intend to startle the dreamers. Light on, door open, door close, silence. Yawn, flush. Water on, water off, door open, door close, light off, cough, sneeze, grumble, sigh, huff, acceptance, Patience, acceptance, patience, acceptance, patience. A 4 a.m. start is planned. It holds deep-rooted motivation and purpose. 4 a.m. is not my sweet spot. I only begin early this particular morning because I'm damn hungry. Very strange, since the night prior, we were presented the most top-notch homemade dinner we weary-walking fools have devoured in this unsuspecting albergue, just twelve steps off to the right of the dusty, wild ribbon of road. The starter was a local squash and garlic puree adorned with crisp herb croutons. I mean, holy right? Bricks of bread worth 
kissing stacked high in sturdy baskets. Regional olive oil filled full in thick glass vases. Regional vino tinto never fully emptied from our cups. Next, a seemingly simple Spanish ensalada mixta of crunchy lechuga, tomate quarters, potent meaty olives grown in the nearby fields, sliver-thin sliced red cebollas crowned with chunks of plain tuna, salt and pepper to taste, a tease of a balsamic drizzle. Oh, que rico! A vat, a vat, I tell you, of a blissfully simmered mixed seafood paella for our main course. The finale, you ask? A freshly whipped lemon yogurt dashed with grated zest nestled within a sugar rim as the dessert digestive. A lullaby poured into our vasos the regional red wine humming its full-bellied notes and or a large bowl of café con leche to set you right to dream. (sighs) The chef. All hail the chef. Cooking and smoking over the food preparation. Obviously, obviously. His long, wispy white ponytail of wisdom and epic chefery. With whimsy he cooked, no, divinely manifested our evening of culinary satisfaction. No hairnet, his rules. Thick fingers of a proud farmer deep dipping into each pot, curiously unsanitary, but brilliance is brilliance. With a brisk flare, he popped my orange fanta and poured me my beverage. Ay, this guru of gastronomy. He even gave me ice in a glass after my day of walking. Ice. Ice in a glass. Pure luxury. What chivalry, my saintly chain-smoking chef. Therefore... Breakfast was beckoning. Yogurt, plain. Honey, combed. Bread, toasted. Café, strong. Milk, warm. Hugo, fresh. Cheese, sliced. Hamon, sliced. Eggs, soft-boiled. Salt, pepper, silence. Chewing. Perfection in the dining room. 4 a.m. Body rested. Muscles stronger. Mind calmer. Heart bold. Spirit and belly fed. And to that I say, well, onwards. Otreya. Today, day 23, at the tail end of a slog of over 17 miles hiking into Astorga, beyond baked under the Spanish sole, I found myself shuffling in stride with a key player on my Camino stage, Klaus from Germany.
his white hair glowing in an echo of halos, forming a holy union with the shimmer from his sweat and the sun and the Holy Spirit that I believed for a heat-induced moment he could be the cherub gatekeeper of deep knowledge to be gained as my Camino continues to unfold. We amble alongside each other toward the last resting spot in town, St. Javier Albergue de Peregrinos, a gem of a location nearby the Catedral St. Marta and the legendary Palacio Episcopal Gaudí. Also, this place is blessed with a strong Wi-Fi signal. We nab the final beds available. To this day, when I enter a church, I whisper a private and potent, Gracias a Dios, for the divine gift that was bestowed upon me that day when Klaus was given a bed on the ground floor and I was given sleeping quarters on the third floor in the attic. The heavy wood staircase and thick bodies of sunburned pilgrims between us provided for a respite from his apnea. I slept past 4 a.m. I ate a breakfast at my leisure of hard croissants, salted butter, individually wrapped white cheese, and a bitter cafecito that softened the multigrain digestive cookies that were left out overnight. Not as extravagant as the previous feast that was provided in Vilar de Mazarif, pero así es la vida. Such is life. Mil gracias a Dios y buen provecho. Gina Cornejo reading her story, 4AM. You can find it and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. About the times we had I think about it twice The more I think the more I'm sad Would you tell me Where I went wrong Why your love Grows cold Yeah. 
make the most sad Would you tell me where I went wrong Why your love grows cold, mine grows strong I would like to hold your hand Start all over
Since the advent of farming, there have been farmer's markets, places where growers can show up and hawk their produce. I remember visiting a friend in Vermont a number of years ago. It seemed like every neighborhood had pop-up farmer's markets, some consistently open since the 1970s. Well, Jeremy Fredericks found what might be the oldest running farmer's market in the country, and I'm actually going to read you his story about it. So here it goes. For the last four years, Anna Garcia has spent her Saturday mornings selling empanadas, soups, quinoa muffins, and sorbets at the Old Town Farmer's Market in Alexandria, Virginia. From grandparents picking up treats for their grandkids to a flight attendant who does not like the plane's food, the customers shopping at Garcia's booth, Anna's Twist, love her chicken, ground beef, and vegetable empanadas. Garcia, who created the business in 2017, believes that empanadas mean to be shared with your loved ones, your friends, your family, she says. Since I was little, my grandmother taught me how to do empanadas and how to close them properly by hand, so that's what we do. That's why my empanadas are handmade, and we don't use anything to close them, just the hand. Garcia's empanadas are just one of many options for hungry customers at the Old Town Farmer's Market. Taking place in the market square since the 18th century, this farmer's market is the oldest in the country to be held in the same location. Produce grown from former President George Washington's estate, Mount Vernon, even made its way to the market. Washington, as far as we can tell, was not selling at the farmer's market, Sam Murphy, the manager of the historic trades at Mount Vernon, said. But slaves at Mount Vernon were selling produce and eggs and chickens at the farm market. Enslaved Americans on Mount Vernon received Washington's rations for food, but were expected to backfill their diets with food that they produced. Some decided to sell, not eat the backfill produce at that market. They are having substance gardens. They're keeping chickens and ducks and bees and selling items from those creatures in Alexandria on Sunday at the farm market, Murphy said. Some of the descendants of the Washington slaves, even into the 19th century, were not consuming the eggs being produced by the chickens because they were put up for sale. So it was allowing the enslaved to actually have income to purchase things themselves. One enslaved American who sold at the market was Sambo Anderson. A carpenter on Mount Vernon, Anderson was making a profit by selling honey and waterfowl he hunted. We know Washington's purchasing a lot of honey from Sambo Anderson, Murphy said, emphasizing the father of the nation's purchases. The big challenge is there's not a whole lot of records, but we do know of instances along the way where they are selling items at the Old Town Market. The Old Town Alexandria Farmer's Market first began over 260 years ago, according to their website. For about two centuries, it flourished until just a handful of farmers were selling to customers in the 1970s. By 1989, the number of vendors had rebounded. David Argento's father was among those selling at the market in 1989. Argento is the owner of Papa's Market, a business based out of Ortana, Pennsylvania, that sells fruits, greens, and jars from his farm and partner farmers in the region. Papa's has been a vendor at the Old Town Market for the last 27 years, beginning with Argento's father, who thought it was a good business venture. The elder Argento, already a vendor at other markets around Washington, D.C., decided to make the two-hour or so trip from Ortana to Old Town. The younger Argento has followed in his footsteps and realized that the market was about much more than just selling produce. It was about the people. It's one of those markets where you really get to know people very well. 
and we sort of formed a community around our market. It's more important than just selling fruit, vegetables. It's a personal connection, Argento said. It's almost like our second community. I live here in Pennsylvania, but I spend the weekends in Alexandria. The market has become the younger Argento's favorite because of the people that shop there on Saturday mornings. It's my favorite market of all the ones we have, Argento said. The history is important, but it's just such a great community, and it's really deeply supported by the Old Town community. People come to it from other places, but it's a very important event every week in Old Town, and all the residents really feel connected to the market and invested in the market. And we feel mutually the same way as vendors. A typical week for Argento begins with him writing his weekly newsletter, which includes pictures of the Adams County, Pennsylvania landscape, literature and updates on the markets they're selling at. On Thursday and Friday, he collects the produce at his farm, as well as some grown by a neighbor, and loads it up on his truck to head to Alexandria. After a pit stop delivering produce to his partner restaurants in Metro D.C., he heads to stay with a friend in Rockville, Maryland. Then on Saturday, he wakes up at 3.30 in the morning to get to the market within the next hour. After setup, the market opens at 7 a.m. And the next five hours, Argento is doing what he loves. We have 7 to 12 to enjoy the company of our customers and sell a few things, Argento says. From there, we have deliveries that we make to customers that, for some reason or another, can't make it to the market. Garcia's day goes similarly to Argento, minus the deliveries. She became a vendor about six months ago after applying, which is shorter than most people have to wait, because the manager of the market really liked her empanadas, an emphasis on healthy foods. At the market, Garcia was able to venture into her second food-related business. We were entrepreneurs in Ecuador. We built an ice cream shop with more than 750 flavors, and it was the most popular ice cream shop in Ecuador, Garcia said. We moved to the U.S. with the same idea, to open an ice cream shop, with more. So that's our next step. Garcia learned to cook from her mother and grandmother, who is still making empanadas at the age of 103. Ecuadorian traditions, like soup made of pumpkin, squash, beans, and nearly two dozen other ingredients, are a staple at her stand. She's passing on the traditions she's learned to her daughter, now 10 years old, who serves as Anna's Twist's taste tester. So I've learned from them how to cook, and that's really what inspires me. So that's why all of my tips are very, very special, and that's what I keep doing here in the U.S., Garcia said. My daughter was really born in the business. She tries first because kids always tell the truth when it's something they like or not. Continuing on a parent's culinary lessons is important to both Argento and Garcia. For Garcia, it connects her to her mother, who passed away from a stroke. For Argento, it allows him to be close to his parents, as well as his sister and brother-in-law, who own a nearby farm, orchard, and winery. When my dad retired from his regular career, he and my mom moved up here to farm, and he started helping Dave out with the farmer's markets. And then it kind of grew into becoming Papa's Market, Argento said, explaining how our dad began helping his brother-in-law. He just got to a point where he couldn't do it anymore, and he hated the idea of quitting. So he said, well, why don't you just start doing it instead of me? And I thought, well, that's a good idea. Garcia is now looking for a more standalone location where she can make and sell her empanadas, soups, and ice creams. We're planning to do that this year, to try to find something just to use ourselves. Then we can have different areas to work, because we really won many, many prizes in Ecuador for our ice cream, Garcia said. The market is less of a place to sell produce and more of a place to produce relationships. 
with fewer Americans participating in activities that help them feel like part of a community, like religious services, teams, or clubs, the Old Town Farmer's Market is helping to reverse the course, according to Argento. She says, To me, it's more than just selling food. It's getting to know people, getting to know their needs. To the people getting old, we'll take stuff to their houses if they can't get out. If they're sick, we'll take care of them. The biggest thing is just getting to know people, becoming friends. There's a lot more than just selling stuff. And one more thing. For Sambo Anderson, the enslaved man at Mount Vernon, the market served as a way for him to make money and earn his freedom. According to the Mount Vernon Digital Encyclopedia, Anderson later used earnings from his hunting operation to purchase and free several of his enslaved family members, including his daughter Charity, his own grandchildren William and Eliza, and Eliza's children James, William, and John. Love in the past 
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Mariam Papano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Sev Deliza, Perfume Genius, Leo Nocentelli, Goat Girl, Annie Hamilton, Isaac Albanez, and David Russell, Javier Van Velthoven, Marco Beltrami, Massive Attack, Goldman, and Chihai Hatakiyama. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I handle the music selection, production, recording, and audio editing, and write some of the original music. Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes, and Lexi Harvey is our new editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Lexi was on vacation this month, but we'll be sure to introduce you to her next episode when she will debut as our new co-host. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.